0: can open up to the book of Acts, chapter 15. We've been in a series in the book of Acts now for quite some time. And uh, we've been in 15 for about two weeks now. It's about second week. And uh, in short, the book of Acts, chapter 15, actually has to do with a theological debate. Don't tune out or fall asleep yet. Um, it is a theological debate, but it's of incredible importance and significance to the future of this uh, primal movement that began in Jerusalem. So a little bit of backstory. Christianity started as a movement, primarily Jewish. It had Jewish roots, Jewish traditions, uh, uh, Jewish people, and it was primarily Jewish, was a Jewish Messiah. Um, uh, you, you get the idea. Um, but it was always God's heart to see this primarily Jewish movement that originated within the Jewish state to begin to expand, to go into all the world. So today, you can find Christianity on every single continent, in every single nation, for the most part. Um, And there's places where it's actually betrayed, but even or or denied and disallowed. And even in those countries, it's still for the most part flourishing because Christianity primarily is not based upon an ethnicity. So that being said, the movement was kind of within this state of growth. And the question that was basically being asked um, or being confronted within the early church was this: How does this primarily Jewish? Religion, with Jewish people, with Jewish customs, with the Jewish Messiah, how do we treat non Jewish people that seem to be flocking into this thing? Um, now, now that, that might not make a whole lot of sense to you, but hopefully I'll, I'll, I'll paint it into these words that might make some sense. So let's say, for example, you grew up in a Jewish home, meaning you ate certain foods and you abstained from certain foods. Um, for example, you were never, all your friends, maybe in a neighborhood, if you lived in kind of a multi ethnic neighborhood, all your friends were eating pork. And talking about how amazing bacon was. And you always go home and you're like, mom, can I have bacon? Mom's like, absolutely not. It's out of the question. No bacon whatsoever for you because it is the food of pagans. And you're like, oh, okay. Sorry for asking. Uh, but it looks so good and it smells so amazing and heavenly and delightful. But it's forbidden food. Now, as this church is growing, this movement is, is expanding, you have all these Jewish people that have all these very strict customs. Um, and you have all these non-Jewish people coming in, and they're bringing pork sandwiches and bacon and dressing in ways that are, that are maybe, in, in some ways, almost offensive because they don't look Jewish, don't act Jewish, don't think Jewish, don't eat Jewish. How do, you, how do you treat those people? How do you welcome them? Do you welcome them? Do you show disdain to them? Do you force your traditions and habits and background upon them, like how do you treat these people? This was the question. Okay, so do you, do you understand? You, you imagine that if you have invite people into your house and they've got radically different traditions than you, and in some ways the very traditions that they practice are maybe offensive to your traditional sensibilities. That's what was happening in the early church. So the question was, how do we proceed? How do we move forward? How do we treat these people that are that are foreigners that have? Uh, Some offensive habits and traditions and sensibilities, um, that was a big question. So the early church basically met, they gathered together, and they had a council. They got together. And from that council, a letter was formed and then distributed uh, throughout the churches. And so what we're going to look at here today, and today we'll actually open up and spawn into several other weeks of um, monologues or teachings. Um, I'll, I'll tell you what those are in a second. But uh, today we're going to be looking at subject matter that the church in Jerusalem was basically making his recommendation, saying these are the things that we're asking the early followers of Jesus that are non-Jewish, that maybe have lived in certain ways that are very contradictory and maybe even in some ways deeply offensive to Jewish sensibilities. So we're going to make some declarations. The church speaking with make some declarations that we're going to ask these Gentile people to live by. One of the things that we're going to be looking at today, primarily because it's in the text. Uh, has to do with a uh, three-letter word, begins with an S, sex. So just FYI, if you do have little ones that are maybe between or below the age of 12, just FYI, it's probably going to be a little bit more PG-13 today because of the content matter that we will be looking at. Just uh, disclaimer. Secondly, um, over the next several weeks, we're going to spend at least four weeks looking at subject matter that I think the church needs to address. And, and here's why. So there's a passage in the book of Acts that says this uh, in about verse 24. It says that there was people that went around and they troubled them and, and it unsettled their minds. So the church, the early Christians, were writing to these followers of Jesus that had deeply unsettled minds and deeply troubled hearts. So the question is, any, anybody out there like that right now? Unsettled minds, troubled hearts. Is our nation at large like, doing pretty good in this area right now? No. In fact, I would say like this is, by and large, our nation right now. Deeply unsettled minds in deeply troubled hearts. Over the question of what? Over the question of what? So what I want to do right now is I I saw this as an opportunity to actually address some very important topics, I think, that are extremely culturally relevant right now. And uh, for the most part, because our church community is made up of people that live in the larger culture and community at large, Um, That means that many of us right now, right now, are deeply troubled and have uh, hearts that are are restless over some of these extremely important topics. And what I want to do over the next four weeks is we'll take a look at at four of these things. Um, And each one of them actually have to do with gospel issues. They they actually, the Bible has, and the gospel actually addresses each one of these things and has a lot to say about them. And I'll tell you what the four are in just a second. But the reality is, uh, I see this as an opportunity for the church, like they did in the book of Acts, to address some of these culturally relevant topics, like how do we treat these outsiders? How do we respond to these uh, non-Jewish, in some ways offensive Gentile people? How do we accept them? Do we accept them? And the early church, rather than avoiding the issue, they actually addressed the issue. Rather than turning a blind eye to the issue, they actually turned a, a very crystal clear, gospel-focused eye upon the subject matter and began to address it. And that's what we're going to do. So here's the four topics. You ready? So the four topics all have to do with the context of the image of God. Each one of them have to do with the context of how is God uh, imaged and rightly borne forth in terms of the gospel through these things. So in other words, what we'll look at over the next few weeks is the way I would describe it is this. The, the image of God and, first of all, the subject of race or racism Um, Obviously, in our culture, the country at large, the subject of Black Lives Matter, the subject of immigrants, the subject of people with different color skin color than others, Uh, these are issues that the larger culture is struggling with and try to understand and deal with, Um, and yet the gospel actually speaks to this, has a lot to say about the subject of race. second thing we'll take a look at uh, is the subject of gender, Uh, male, female, gender. And really, in some ways, the larger context of of male uh, privilege or male oppressiveness or male uh, way of of not dealing rightly with women, which has kind of spawned all sorts of other movements like feminism and so on and so forth. But again, these are things that the gospel actually addresses. And therefore, the church, we we can't turn a blind eye to these things. In some contexts, if you're a guy here and you're rolling your eyes, it just simply underscores the fact that it needs to be addressed. Because you don't get it. You don't get it. You're still looking at the fact and thinking, this is ridiculous, what do we got to deal with this? Because you just, you just proved the point. You do not get it. There are women, ladies in our context, that feel as if they have not been given a voice. They feel oppressed. They feel uh, virtually silenced. And the gospel actually addresses it. The third thing we'll take a look at is the subject of sexuality. G B L T Q I. Subject of how to address that, how to help people think about and process the subject of same-sex attractions and so on and so forth. And these are subjects I think the gospel addresses that the church needs to think about hard and carefully and thoroughly and thoughtfully over these subjects. Uh, otherwise, they just kind of get tossed up to the side and it creates a context of fear. And fear always creates a context of alienation, which is the exact opposite of the gospel. Right? Jesus says to cast out our fear, and he says, welcome, not alienate. So, these are gospel issues. Lastly, we'll take a look at the subject of life. Life, life, unborn, from the womb to the tomb. Life, how does does the Bible actually teach us to think carefully about life? The unborn, to the immigrant, to the elderly, that are on their deathbed? Is is life... uh, just simply utilitarian? Is it something that can just be uh, a plug, can be pulled because that person is no longer a contributing factor to society at large? Is their life not important? The subject of uh, adoption, uh, 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 marginalized, the hurting, the poor, the people that for the most part, culture just simply says you, you don't have a voice. You don't, you don't matter. The gospel actually, shockingly, surprisingly, may radically revolutionize how you view and how you think about these the subjects, and, and we're, gonna, we're gonna spend some time thinking about them. And the reason why is because I think um, that, that they're, they're subjects that our country and because you and I belong to our country, uh, many of us are, are deeply troubled over what we're perceiving within culture at large. And I think the Bible speaks a lot about these subjects. Sound good? Well, that's just giving you a little bit of an appetite what we'll, or a little taste. I should say, trailer of what we will be looking at over the next few weeks. But today, we're going to just focus on the rest of chapter 15, or the portion that we're going to look at. So, is that okay? You guys good? All right, let's jump in. All right, Acts chapter 15, what I want to do is we're going to jump in and begin to kind of read where we left off last week, That's kind of how we do stuff. We just kind of read through the scripture and let it speak to us, and we make comments as we go, and that's what we're going to continue to do. So we're going to pick up around verse 12. And again, uh, we see two or several different characters in the story. The two primary characters are... Paul, does anybody remember the other guy's name? Other guy? There's uncertainty out there. You guys speak loud. Barnabas, Barnabas, right. Barney. You can call him Barney. Barney? That was a bad joke. Paul and Barnabas. Paul and Barnabas. These are two guys. Paul and Barnabas, sorry. Uh, Paul and Barnabas are the two main characters, and these guys have been doing ministry, and they have been doing ministry predominantly throughout uh, the the region of Asia Minor, or otherwise known as modern-day Turkey, and they just got back from a mission trip that basically they planted churches and saw God working uh, miracles uh, on behalf of these uh, Gentile, non-Jewish people. So they saw hordes, literally hordes, of non-Jewish people coming to faith in Jesus. It was was amazing. It was miraculous of what was happening within that context. So with that being said, what we begin to see now kind of as we enter into the story, verse 12, uh, these guys end up going to Jerusalem because there were these controversial sayings that were basically being pawned off amongst these people. So when they were coming into the small gatherings of Jewish uh, believers, there were those that were saying, hey, if you're going to be part of our group, you have to be circumcised. Or you have to follow the law of Moses. Or you have to throw away your bacon. Or you're not allowed to live the way that you're supposed to live. or You're supposed to dress the way that we all dress. And if you don't, we will not accept you. And so Paul was deeply troubled by this because the people were deeply troubled by this. And so what Paul did is he went to Jerusalem to meet with the leaders of the early church, which in the context, again, the other characters in this uh, story had to do with a guy named James, another guy by the name of Peter. And that's kind of where we're catching up to speed with regard to this. So I'll read verse 12, make some comments as we go through, and then uh, we'll wrap this up. It says, And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they relayed uh, what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simon has related how God has first visited the Gentiles to uh, take from them the people for his name. This is a reference to uh, Acts chapter 10. If you're familiar with that story or not, you can go back and read it on your own. It's a great story of how God was opening the doors uh, miraculously to this group of non-Jewish people. Verse 15, it says, And with this, uh, the words of the people and the prophets, they all agree. Uh, just as it was written. I was going to quote um, out of a passage out of the book of Amos, uh, an Old Testament prophet. It uh, was called a minor prophet. And uh, he quotes his statement of how God is actually in the process of restoring and rebuilding the tent of Israel, but he's also expanding the tent to include non-Jewish people. And, and so they saw this as, as a prophecy that God had always, from the very beginning, envisioned a global family, not just, not just Jewish in race, but a global family including all colors, all traits, all skin tones, all, uh, all sexes, all people from all around the world, God had envisioned this one unified family under the king of Jesus, the king Jesus. It says, and after this, I will return. I will build the tent of David that has fallen, and I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes the things Known from old. So again, there there you have it. Like this Old Testament passage that alludes to the fact that God had had wanted to bring in Gentiles, non Jewish people, into this this global family, this global kingdom. Verse 19, it says, Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those Gentiles who turn to God, but that we should write to them to abstain from from things polluted by idols and from sexual morality and from what has been strangled and from blood. From for from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogue. Verse twenty-two. Now we begin to see some movement as to how the church addresses. So they create sort of a delegation of uh, two couple, two guys, two other characters that get brought into the story here, and they're going to follow with uh, Paul and Barnabas as they go back to the city of Antioch. So if if you're not familiar with the geography. Uh, Jerusalem, if you, you think of in your mind where Jerusalem was, um, about another 300 miles north, as a, like a crow flies, is where Antioch is. Um, or if you were to take the ancient paths, it's probably about another 450 miles. So imagine, that, that's not a small feat. I mean, back then you had camels and horses if you're really rich. Most people just simply walked. So imagine walking from here to San Diego. It's about 400 miles, right? Somewhere around there? Yeah? Imagine um, just delivering a message from here. Like, you would imagine there's a lot of dangers. This is not a small jaunt, right? This is like, this, this takes, I don't know, weeks, a long time to actually get from point A to point B. So, uh, this delegation is then sent out from Jerusalem to go to Antioch, very far away, to deliver this message that's going to bring great relief to these Gentiles that are being brought in that are deeply troubled by uh, what's going on. So, here's what it says. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders and the whole church uh, to those to choose men from among them and to send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, and they called Judas, named Barsabbas. We're not exactly sure why it says Judas called Barsabbas. My guess, my guess, again, I'm just, this is my opinion, um, who wants to be called Judas? Like, who, who wants to have that in the, the, the book of life, right? Yeah, my name is Judas. Like, oh, you mean like the guy that betrayed Jesus? No, not that guy. I'm Judas Barsabbas, right? Like, that's who I am. I'm not that guy that went out and betrayed Jesus, right? That became kind of a bad name. It's kind of like uh, there's certain names in the Bible that you wouldn't want to name your kid. Like no one wants to name their kid Jezebel. It's not It not doesn't, doesn't mean good. Um, and this guy, Judas, it says, you know, Barsabbas. Make sure you tell the name Barsabbas. Add that to there because I don't want to be confused with the other guy. So Judas, also called Barsabbas, and Silas, Uh, leading the men along with the brothers. So Silas becomes an important character later on in the book of Acts, at least in the life of Paul. Uh, There's not a whole lot that we know about Silas other than he becomes sort of like a a protege, or my favorite, Padawan, of the Apostle Paul. And uh, he's going to basically learn everything that Paul would teach him, and he will end up church planting and being a part of the ministry that that Paul had started. So uh, there's going to be a close relationship that will be formed by way of Paul. Then it says in verse uh, 23, uh, with the following letter, here's a letter that they're going to read. So I'm going to read it. This is what the letter was that the people from Jerusalem sent to the Gentiles. This is what the letter says. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are, uh, who are of the Gentiles in Antioch in Syria and Cilicia, greetings. So large, broader swath of country living uh, all within that uh, focused region called Antioch. So this letter is addressed to all these churches around there. It says this, since we have heard that there are some persons who have gone out from us uh, and they have troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we give, we gave them no instructions, uh, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas who themselves will tell you the things by the word of mouth. So there's this letter, and then it's going to be followed up by way of like actual dialogue, hanging out, drinking coffee, and uh, spending time with each other, and having meals, and then dialoguing. That's how the early church imparted information, kind of like Bible studies, welcoming someone into your house, having a meal, talking about the gospel. That's what these guys did. This is verse 28. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay no greater burden um, than these requirements. So here's what they're going to say. Um, we want to affirm, first of all, that the trouble that you guys are going through, uh, we recognize that, that's unfortunate. And by the way, the people that were troubling you, even though they may have come out from our region, we did not send them. They are an inauthentic expression of the gospel. So they're basically invalidating the message that was causing them trouble. Are there messages in today's world that are causing our hearts trouble? Yes, perhaps. Um, how, How do they address this? They address this by another word of comfort. And so they inauthenticate the message that is coming from these other troubled uh, sources, and then they basically replace it and say, here's what we're asking you to do. And then they give them some instructions. There's actually four instructions that they're going to give them. Here's what it says. It says uh, that we're going to not lay any burden, burden any, uh, on you other than these requirements. Verse 29 says that you should abstain from what has been uh, sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. It says, if you keep these things, uh, you will do well. It says, farewell. And I'll finish up the last little section right here. So, so when they had set off, they went down to Antioch. And having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. So it brought encouragement to them. It says, and Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, they encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time there, they sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. And Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. So there you go, that's the story. So what I want to look at is the two things that they basically give. So there's four uh, main uh, instructions that they're given, and most scholars would, would agree that they basically break down into two main categories. The first of which is has to do with keeping peace, has to do with actually keeping a sense of of shalom, peace within the community. Now, now why is that significant? Well, again, like I said, if if you have certain cultural liberties um, and then you go and hang out with a bunch of people that have a lot of cultural restrictions, if you live according to those liberties and you flaunt those liberties, there's a very good possibility you might bring an unnecessary amount of offense to those other people. That's exactly what's happening here. So there's three main instructions that they're given. I'll just go through these really quickly. One, that they're not to eat food offered to idols. Two, they're not to eat uh, meat that has blood in it, and uh, which is an allusion to how the meat was prepared. And then thirdly, uh, meat that was strangled. So, so what, what is, why is this so significant? Well, elsewhere Paul actually addresses the fact. So if you were Jewish living in that culture, um, the, the way that the, the meat, where you would go by meat, um, is that you'd go down to the markets. just like, you know, we'd go down to markets. But the, the difference is that the meat that they would have there was typically, for the most part, offered to uh, idols. Sacrifice. So in that paganized culture, you'd bring, you know, your cow, and they would have that cow slaughtered on the altar or whatever, and the blood was, you know, everywhere. And then they, they would take the, the choicest meat, tri-tip, right, and then throw it down in the market. And it, it was kind of like this prime cut meat uh, that was sacrificed idol. idols. So if you're pagan... And now you're walking with Jesus. You're like, I love Jesus, and I love tri-tip. And they have the best tri-tip at the market where it's part of the, you know, temple to Zeus. Yes, that meat was offered to Zeus, but I don't really care. It's just meat. It's really, really good. Now, if you're Jewish, that radically offends your sensibilities, right? So if you're Jewish, in your mind, you're like, oh, my gosh, that meat is defiled. That meat was offered to a false god, a false entity, there's no way that I could sit in a Bible study, go into someone's house, have a barbecue and eat meat that was offered to a false entity, like that's, that's sacrilegious and that's deeply offensive, so you get to kind of see some of how these are playing out, so what Paul would elsewhere later say, and as well as right here, they just said Avo- avoid these things, the, the big idea that's basically being conveyed is that on the one hand, we have liberty, When on one hand, we have liberty, we can, there's a lot that we can do. In Jesus, as followers of Jesus, but we are also uh, governed by a whole new principle called love. And love for God, love for our neighbor. And so if there's something that I'm going to do that actually might cause deep offense or hurt or frustration or the Bible's word stumble someone else, then I, I should really be concerned about loving my neighbor so much so that out of love, I'm going to push to the side my liberty. Does that make sense? You guys following? You guys Okay. Yeah? Okay, good. Just making sure. Um, So the reality is, this is what what the early church is basically saying. This is not about, hey, if you avoid eating meat offered to sacrifices, you're going to go to heaven. This is the way that you keep peace. Friendship. Relationship. Because friendships, relationships are fragile. Hello? Right? They're fragile. There's things that we can do that could actually rub against the sensibility of somebody else and bring offense to that person. And when offense happens that relationship now suffers a setback. Does that make sense? And what Paul is saying is be aware of the importance of peace that Jesus has brought and don't do things that can somehow needlessly and uh, bring offense to these people. Be aware of their sensibilities and therefore don't eat meats so- offered sacrifices and uh, meet with blood in and so on and so forth. These are playing into Jewish customs and traditions. And again, the idea here is to keep the peace. Be careful, because by keeping the peace, by living in those ways, by being careful of the sensibilities of other people, you're actually demonstrating love. You're showing love. It's an active, rather than passive, it's an active way of saying, I'm going to show love to my fellow followers of Jesus that are my friends and family members. The second thing that he says, actually has little to do with just simply keeping peace and more to do with the idea of keeping purity. And this actually plays into what's called the purity laws of of Judaism. So what's, what's interesting here is that out of, I don't know, 613 laws that could have been recited, this is one of the laws that actually gets carried into the present of how the church should conduct itself. In other words, how should a Christian conduct itself? Are we free to treat sexuality and sex in any way that we want? Can we define it? To, uh, to, uh, to be customized according to our lives any way that we want? Can we treat it as simply a utility that gives me pleasure and delight and satisfies my deepest desires? Or is there another ethic which we are actually called to live by? And the answer is yes, absolutely. We, there is an entirely different ethic that's different than the way that the culture uh, has given us our understanding of the subject of human sexuality and how we're to think about it and consider it, and ultimately uh, live according to it. So with that being said, what I want to do is I want to spend the rest of our time together here, and we'll we'll be done, Uh, but I want to think about this. I think it deserves not cheap, short, hollow, shallow answers. I think it deserves us to think about this, and here's why. Our entire culture is highly sexualized. If statistics are right, then that means that one out of every four women have been somehow sexually impacted Uh, in a negative way, harassed, abused. That's huge. Uh, Other statistics are right, and that means that there are majority of men and perhaps even women in this context have at some point struggled or are currently struggling or will struggle with things like pornography or sexual transgressions against somebody else. It's a big thing, and it deserves carefully thinking about this. Um, not just randomly because it's like, wouldn't this be a great topic to talk about, but because it's in the text. So we've got to think about this. It's, it's an important subject. So with that being said, I want to begin to ask a little bit further, like what does the Bible, especially the New Testament, have to say about the subject of sexuality with regard to this context? So uh, in this story there's not a lot of instruction or information given to us. So with that, we got to go to other sources in the New Testament where Paul actually writes a lot about it. So why don't you guys turn your Bibles real quick to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And Paul actually writes a lot about this. Now, Corinth was a port city, very similar to like modern day San Francisco. You would imagine a lot of foreigners, a lot of a lot of movement going on, people coming in, people going out, a lot of commerce, a lot of business, a lot of good food, a lot of... A lot of activity, a lot of sexual promiscuity going on all the time. But in the context of this deeply, highly sexualized Corinthian port city, Jesus began to rescue people, started changing people. And so the question was, okay, now that I'm a follower of Jesus, how do I think about sexuality? How do I think about engagement sexually with everybody else? Is there anything, is there, is there a north star that I can anchor into, hone in on, that will provide some level of direction or guidance in a very, very dark night? Is there anything that I can hold on to? And this is what Paul is actually writing to, saying, I want to give you some instructions to think about these things because failure to think about these things will continue to lead down paths of deep brokenness. I've been pastoring for almost 25 years, and I can honestly say the number one constant ongoing form of brokenness is always, always, always sexual. Always. Whether it's a marriage that a woman finds out her husband's been downloading porn or the husband finds out his wife's been downloading porn or a woman who has been raped or men who are stuck and trapped in the context of not knowing how to think rightly about sex because they have been so trained and conditioned to think about sex from the context of pornography that it constantly brings forth great uh, brokenness and oftentimes deep shame to the hearts of people that have been either participants of sinning against other people or sinned against other people. Deep shame. It's the number one thing. So Paul writes about this, and here's what I'm going to look at. So that being said, and this uh, just straight up, okay, this this is heavy. I get it. I get it. But just uh, stick with me and think carefully through these things because I think it's a subject matter that deserves careful thought. So with that being said, let's jump in. So there's two main, I would say, distortions that uh, Paul's day had thought about sex, the idea of sex and sexuality. So on the one hand, Paul's going to address the subject in terms of sex, I'll just describe it as sex as appetite, sex as appetite. In other words, it's a desire, it's an appetite, it's, it's a craving, it's a longing, it's an impulse, and I feed that. So Paul addresses that by way of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 13. He says this, and I'll, just, I'll read it to you. Let me turn there real quick. Um, 1 Corinthians 6, 13. Let me read it. He says, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, but God will destroy both one and the other, uh, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. So what's Paul saying? He's actually addressing uh, what a lot of scholars believe to be uh, Greek poets that basically felt, or Greek philosophers, that basically felt that the body, the physical nature of who we are, is, is evil. It's, uh, there's, it's just kind of uh, abstract. The most important part of who you are, what makes you you, is your soul. So you got to guard your soul. That's why you, know, you, you want to invest in philosophy. Think about concepts and ideas and truths. But the body, you can do anything you want with the body. The body is just sort of this abstract reality that just it's prone towards uh, impulses and desires. So whatever your body wants, just feed it because it's, it's no big deal. It's going to die. It's going to fall away. It's going to perish at some point. So this is the first and primary idea, which thinks about sex as nothing more than impulse. The second thing is sex, not only as appetite or impulse, but sex as defilement. And Paul's going to address this a little bit later, uh, where he goes on to say, um, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, he says, Now it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. So Paul comes out, and sounds like he's contradicting himself. On one hand, he says, you know, food for the body, blah, blah, blah. And he says, you know, don't have sex with a woman. So what, what is he talking about here? So again, a lot of scholars believe what Paul is doing is he's referring to the other opposite spectrum of uh, Greek philosophy and Greek thought on the subject of sex. And this is looking at sex as nothing more than sex as defilement. It's kind of dirty. It's filthy. Uh, if you engage in the process, you have to because it is the means merely. It's just utilitarian. The means of sex is just to procreate. But every once in a while, you've got you to do it. So if you've got to do it, you've got to engage in it and deal with it. Uh, yeah, you'll be defiled. But as soon as you're done with it, then hopefully you'll have kids and get on with the, the more important things of life of just raising children. And this is the idea of sex as defilement. Now in some ways, uh, we, we, can, we can ask the question is, uh, are these prevalent? Or, are any trace or hint of these prevalent in today's, today's world? And I would say, yes and yes. So where is, in today's society, sex as appetite prevalent? And where is sex as defilement prevalent? And I, I, I think maybe this little bit of broad stroking, but just follow me. I think you might uh, uh, agree. On the one hand, sex as appetites oftentimes, if you look at a map, are, is, is most prevalent in blue states, right? More liberal societies where people kind of have this generalized perspective that what is, what is best for me is what feels best for me. Then in red states, you have this mentality of sex, ew, don't talk about sex, nasty, nasty, let's not talk about it. If you are engaging in sex, we will distance ourselves from you or we will shame you or we will talk condescendingly upon you or for you or towards you and this idea of it's just simply kind of a prudish approach to sex and sexuality. Now again, like I said, this is just simply in some ways caricaturing or uh, broad stroking but I think you kind of get the general idea but what does Paul do and what does Paul say about the subject of sex? Surprisingly, Paul doesn't go from one extreme to the next. He doesn't simply just look at it as utilitarian, just a, a function that needs to be done to procreate, nor does Paul simply look at it as an empty appetite to be satisfied anytime you have this craving. But he actually takes the subject of sex and he elevates it to these sublime levels where sex in the Bible is actually something absolutely transformative, mind-blowing, and good. So listen to what Paul does. It's pretty amazing what Paul does. First century context in a culture very much like our own that had two wide-ranging, divergent views. So here's what Paul goes on to say. In verse uh, 17, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he goes on and he says, flee immorality. He says in verse 17, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes uh, one spirit with him. Then says in verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. Those are almost the exact identical words that were issued forth in that charter, that letter that we just read in Acts chapter 15. Almost the same words. Flee sexual, flee sexual immorality. So the word sexuality, or, or uh, sexual immorality, I should say that's actually used there, is the Greek word, porneum. You know, obviously we get the English word, uh, pornography, from, but uh, that's a little bit deceptive to think of uh, sexual immorality just in the context of, of pornography. It does, it does definitely involve you know, downloading nudie pictures, but it's far more than that. It involves any uh, uh, sexual relationship that is outside these covenantal bonds of, of devotion, of relationship, of love, a commitment, self-donation of each other's self to the other person. It involves anything, and it is more than just simply adultery. Some have tried to say, well, he's just talking about adultery. Not at all. There's another word that could have been used for adultery. Paul chooses the word, used the word uh, pornam. So there's something on Paul's mind, there's something on the mind of the early church leaders that they're trying to convey, that they're basically saying, flee from this stuff. Whatever it is, flee from it. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you've got to think about this. You have to think about this in the context of your life, in the context of your surroundings, in the context of your habits, in the context of those things that you may be engaged in that are bringing death to your soul instead of life. So this is what Paul says, flee Sexual immorality. And then he goes on to say, every other sin that a person commits is outside of the body, but sexual immoral person sins against his own body. So he gives some more instruction on this. A person that sins, sexual sin, actually sins against himself. He's going to go on to elaborate. That's also not just a sin against himself, but it's also a sin against that person. And in reality, it's a sin against the, the very God that created them and designed them to think about sex in a more highly fruitful and flourishing type of way. Instead, it's, it's, it's embracing a distortion of something that God intended for incredible good. So what is the picture that Paul is going to say? Verse 19, he goes on to say, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom uh, you have from God? You are not your own. Verse 20 he says, You are bought with the price, so glorify God in your body. So again, what does Paul say? It sounds a lot like red state uh, agenda, Right? right? Stop having sex. Stop. Flee from it. Turn away from it. That's not at all what Paul is saying because if you, again, read 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16, if you have your Bibles open, just look at that right now, and we'll read this and make some statements on this, and we'll wrap this up. Listen to what Paul says again. He says, sexual union, in verse uh, 16, says, do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one with her. Now, don't get too hung up on the word prostitute. Again, that culture in that day, a lot of times people just give themselves for for money, very similar way we think about prostitution, but um, the idea was just, you know, illicit acts of engagement. Today's culture, we would say booty call or friends with benefits or however you want to describe it, one night stands. The same idea simply applies. It's this casual uh, engagement of sexual encounter. And he says, don't you know, That when you engage in sexual activity, it's more than just two bodies engaging in a physical act. There's something profoundly deeper that's happening that you may not be aware of. That to simply engage in it mindlessly is actually contributing to breakdown and brokenness and defilement and hurt and ruin and destruction. In other words, the very opposite of shalom. The very opposite of peace. The very opposite of what God has come to bring. Here's what he says. He says, for as it is written, the two shall become one flesh. So, here's some things to think about. God did not design sex to be a defiling but necessary mode of procreation. Right? You hear that? God did not design sex to just be a necessary or defiling mode of procreation, just a necessary object, necessary duty. Like, we want little bambinos around the house, let's have sex. Don't really like it, don't want to be engaged in it because it's nasty. No one wants to talk about sex but we've got to have little babies because we, we, we need whatever, you know, to pass on our inheritance to the next generation, but, or tax deductions, or whatever. But the point of the matter is, is that it's, this is defiling, and God created it to be far more than that, nor did God design sex to be a means of self-gratification, self-expression. Rather, God designed sex, this is from Tim Keller, to be an act of total self-giving, self-sacrifice, self-donation for the purpose of total life transformation, completion, nurture, healing, and wholeness. When two people come together, and I'll add, and we will break this down in the weeks to come, when two heterosexual people come together and completely devote themselves to one another as difference, different people, different sexes, coming together, something profoundly beautiful happens when two people are naked and unashamed and vulnerable, not just physically vulnerable but emotionally, spiritually soulishly. saying I will give you the entirety of myself, not just my body, but of my heart, my soul my mind, my past my dreams, my visions, my fears my anxieties sum total of who I am and when that other person on the other reciprocating end says I accept you all that you are your past, your brokenness, your ruin, your hurt, everything else. And I, in turn, give you all that I am. Something profoundly beautiful happens. The two become one. Conversely, when one participant says, I give you all this myself, my body, my life, my sex, my, my, my past, my hurt, my burdens, all these other things. And the other person holds out and says, I just want your body. But I don't really care about all that other stuff. I just want your body. That is deeply grieving and hurtful because it dehumanizes the other person. It treats them less than a human being. And that leads to insane brokenness, and defilement, and hurt, and wounds. So, the thing is, when we find ourselves living in a culture which practices and ultimately sells because we're a highly sexualized culture, random sex acts, sex outside of covenantal, heterosexual, monogamous, marriage, booty calls, one-night stands, friends with benefits, this ultimately results in hollow acts involving the giving of one's body while at the same time, simultaneously withholding one's independence. Trying to somehow hold on to the fact of saying, I will give you my body, but I will not give you my soul. At some point, that relationship will become extremely dysfunctional, on the nice way of describing it, but extremely hurtful and painful and disruptive to life and flourishing itself on the extreme end. Okay? Okay? This is what we see, and this happens. See, the reason why this is so important is because you cannot have true intimacy, true intimacy. So you can live without sex, but you cannot live without intimacy. You can live without sex, but you cannot live without intimacy. And sometimes there's a tendency to confuse the two, to bleed them together in one. Sex equals intimacy, and sex becomes a vehicle for intimacy. But when intimacy is not given back in the context of the vehicle of sex, and that leads to even a compounded form of brokenness. And this is why pornography, and pornography is kind of an interesting thing, because pornography, uh, statistics often as we'll say, and I've read books recently that basically describe, se- pornography is sex minus relationship. It's like the super, uber convenient way to get all the gratification of a sexual uh, experience without the baggage of having to listen to your gripes and complaints and pain and burdens and struggles and hardships. It's the very opposite of the gospel. So, with that being said, I'm going to finish. You're welcome. You're like, ah, oh, when is this going to be over? It's almost over. So, you cannot be fully human without intimacy. Like, we thrive. We have to have intimacy. But when we engage in acts which repeatedly Withhold intimacy and total vulnerability, that will ultimately dehumanize you and leave you feeling filthy and broken and used. So in closing, I want to read a couple quotes, and I'm done. It relieves attention a little bit. So here we go. Tim Keller. Some great things to say if you're looking for more information. I would highly recommend Just do a Google search for Tim Keller and sex, and there's all sorts of amazing things he's got to say. But let me just read these. Um, Here's what he says. Christians find that in today's culture wars, they are often on the same side with Jews, and Muslims, and Hindus. The Christian preacher seems to be saying, so this is really important, the Christian preacher seems to be saying, so you might come in here and be like, oh, it sounds like the pastor is just telling me to be moral. Um, if, if that's all you're hearing, um, either I'm not doing a good job expressing or explaining the, the fullness of what's being communicated, or, or, or maybe there may be a little misunderstanding in terms of what's being communicated. But he says this, that uh, the Christian preacher seems to be saying, be moral, as uh, as, a, as, a, as a call it a duty. Then he says, but when we ask, why be moral? The other systems are actually saying, so that we can find God. Well, the Christian faith actually is saying, because God has found you. He goes on to say, That the gospel, Christian gospel, is that we are not saved by moral living. We're saved for it. We're saved by grace alone. But that grace that saves us will inevitably issue forth in a moral life. Go on. Next slide. Many sermons tell people to say no to immorality. Often the reasons are, and this may be bring back some of your memories from your high school group, right? When the pastor's up there and he's like, stop doing this. And he says, because it's against the Bible, or it will hurt your self-esteem, or it's against our Christian principles, or your sins will find you out. Those things are, they are, they're all true. There's there's no untruths about those things. They are true, but they're inadequate. And are ultimately secondary motives. Only the grace of God teaches us to say no. So a reference to Titus 2.11. And he says, it argues with us saying no you are not living as though you are loved. You're living as if you're trying to be loved. You're living as if you're looking for someone to accept you and love you and you give yourself away hoping that in return you will be accepted and loved and not shunned and not betrayed. He goes on to say, you're not living as though you are loved, as his child, it is not because he will abandon you that you should be holy, but because at inestimable cost he has said he won't abandon you. How can you live in the very sin that he was ripped to pieces to deliver you from? That's it. This is profoundly life-giving if you hear what it's saying. It's saying simply this, that our sexual, how we think about sexuality, how we think, how we live according to it, how, we're, how we define it, is not to be imported from the larger culture around us. That is constantly saying, give yourself over to it, indulge in it, uh, throw yourself completely at it. It will somehow satisfy you, but it never satisfies you. It never can. It can't satisfy you. But what the Christian gospel is always saying is that if you give yourself to God, what he will do is he will take you because we know this is the story of the gospel. We have a God that has completely given himself to you. This is what the story of the gospel is ultimately about. We have a God that has made himself vulnerable to us. That's what the cross is. It's God in the flesh making himself of utmost vulnerability to you and I that's what sucks is and on the cross we have a God that says I will be completely stripped of everything at my own volition my own will because this is the price to pay to carry your guilt your shame your defilement your brokenness. And here's one other final thing I would say. When you truly believe this, this will actually set you free. And it will set you free on a couple of different levels. On the one hand, it will set you free. Because if, for example, if sex is just simply this means of self-expression, of self-indulgence, of of satisfaction of your appetites, what happens if Uh, your appetite is low? Or what happens if you don't have the physical body that is acceptable by the masses? What happens if you are rejected because you don't have the physical frame that is desirable by others? You look at everybody else and think, they got the goods, they got life, I'm barred from that. Nobody wants me. Let's say you have it. Let's say you have everything. That's even more distressing because you get into a relationship, and your entire, the entire basis or tie of that relationship is based upon how physically attractive you are. What happens if somebody more physically attractive comes along than you? You are in a status of incredible discomfort and insecurity. But the gospel says, no matter who you are, no matter how broken you are, no matter how defiled you are, no matter how messed up you are, you have a God that says, I will covenant myself to you, and no matter how broken, I will accept you always, over and over entirely, because that's what the cross is all about. We have a God who gave himself for you. To the degree that you believe that and trust that, that will transform your heart. One final thing, I'll finish with this. This is another quote from Keller. He says, as Christians... Find that in today's culture, wars, I'm sorry, wrong quote. Uh, He says, To become a Christian is not to get help for your agenda. To become a Christian is not to get help for your agenda, but to take on a whole new agenda, the will of God. You must obey him because you owe him your life, because he is your creator and your redeemer. So, what he's saying is that the very heart of Christianity is not us coming to God saying, I have an agenda that I want God to rubber stamp, I want God to approve. I want God to just simply give me all these other things, these specific details and data and information that God will make my life better. What Christianity is about saying, I'm bringing all of that and dumping it at his feet and saying it's rubbish before you because I can't even begin to conceive of what you have in store for me. But God, I receive as a gift of grace your agenda for my life. That involves everything, including your sexuality how you view sex, how you think about it. That's what leads to life. Trusting the king, not living according to morality, but trusting the king with the sum total that you are. He's the God that will accept you. He's the God that will change you and transform you and give you new hearts, new inclinations, new desires, new impulses. He's a God that is not put off by your past. That's the beautiful thing. One final thing, I'm done. We have a culture that a lot of times within religious context, it's not okay to be not okay. The context oftentimes is that if you are struggling with these things, somehow you are filthy, you are marginalized, you are trash. That is the very opposite of the gospel. The gospel says, yes, you may have, have the scent of brokenness on your life because of where you've come from, of what has happened to you, of what you have done to others, but we have a God that says, come to me. And I will wash you. I will receive you. I will cleanse you. No matter who you are. And I'll give you a new life. New hope. New future. That's the hope that we have. So, you guys doing okay? We're going to respond by singing, by entrusting our hearts to God. Uh, I'm going to have the worship team come on up right now. And why don't we all stand. We'll uh, partake of community together. We'll sing together. Lift up our voices. Uh, if you're here this morning for anything that's going on in your life, you need prayer, ministry. So I'm going to pray for you, pray over you, read scripture to you, listen to you, whatever. Uh, ministry time. It's, it's what we're going to make some allowance for up here. So why don't we all stand? Go for it. Let's all stand. There we go. Good job. And then um, as we sing, you guys can partake of communion. Uh, if you need prayer for anything, I'll invite you. You can come up right now if you want uh, to, to pray, if you just want to get on your face before God and the carpets, and then you're, you're more than welcome to do that as well. I'll be up here to pray. I'm going to ask for some of the leaders and small group leaders, community group leaders to come on up here. They'll be available up here to pray as well. So uh, no matter what, I mean, if, you're, if if some of the things that were spoken, like were super poignant to you, and, and you're like, ah, that's, that's, that's me. I've deeply confused and troubled and not sure how to navigate and think about these things and some things were deeply convicting and, and, and areas and, and lights that were shown in my soul that I realized I needed to give back to God, um, then come forward. Again, it's, this is a context where it is okay to not be okay. That's, that's the gospel community. So, but the hope is that when Jesus meets us, he puts us on a path of transforming us and changing us because he gives us life. So, so, whoever you are, no matter what's going on, need prayer, if you're not a Christian here this morning, again, as we always offer, the gospel is all about uh, receiving you, no matter who you are, no matter what you've gone through, nothing ever puts God off. Just know that. God's not put off by your past. What you've done to sin against other people, what you've been a victim of, of sins from other people against you, God's not put off by that. But he's a God that wants to bring hope and healing and transformation. So let me pray. We'll sing. And you guys are more than welcome to come on up if you need prayer. And in between the song, whatever, I'll have just put another call out. So let me pray. We'll sing. Jesus, thank you for your great love, which welcomes us here. So uh, we we respond uh, to you in worship.